Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined today by the entire crew. In one corner, I have Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hello, and how are you? Hi, Alex. Doing great. How are you? Uh, this has been a long week. It has. For every possible reason, which is why I'm glad that I also have Natasha Mascarenas here. Natasha, hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I guess I have a raspy voice because I've been talking to real people in person for this whole week. So if I sound different, I'm not sick. I'm just, I'm just unsocializing. That's because before the show, we were doing our levels check and I was like, you sound like you've been talking a lot. And she's like three days of networking. And we all said, wow, how are you still alive? Uh, but before we talk about what Natasha has been doing, because that is actually the first thing we'll dive into a quick note on the show. We're going to riff on the All Rays event, which was a big darn deal. Then we're going to talk about a couple of deals of the week involving Monte Carlo and Bolt. Bolt's not a deal of the week. It's more of a happening of the week, but you'll see what we mean in just a second. Then we're going to talk about Sequoia and Andreessen leaning in and leaning out during the downturn, I suppose. We're going to talk about Zip and Nowports and how companies are still raising 2020 money in 2022 and why. And then we're going to talk about Plaid versus the world through the lens of Phoenix and Stripe. There's quite a lot to get through this week. There's a lot of just dense news items, but all that really matters. So hang out with us. We're going to get through all of it. But first, Natasha, you went out into the world and saw other humans. Tell us about that. Yeah. So this week was the All Rays VC Summit. And All Rays is a nonprofit that's really dedicated to increasing diversity in tech, both on the venture capital and founders that receive funding side. And so it was really fun. It was the first time I went. I was, I think, the only journalist there. So it was kind of like this really weird thing where I got to eavesdrop. I mean, obviously a gift in that way. Unfortunately, it was off the record, but I can tell you some of the things that happened. So one was that Mandela Dixon is their new CEO. And she actually just, or it was announced in March and it's only a few months later and she was running the whole show. It was so cool to see her take the stage as the new CEO. And her mission was really to increase All Raises definition of inclusion. And you could really feel it. So I don't know, that felt really nice to see and got to see a ton of friends of the pod as well. So thank you to everyone who came up to me and was like, is that the voice that's on equity? <laughs> Love <laughs> it. So cool. The answer is yes. So just energy though, Natasha, we're going back out into person. TechCrunch is doing IRL events this year. How did it feel to be out? I mean, doing what we used to do all the time, but you know, now. I mean, honestly, like not to be cheesy, but most networking events, I tweeted this, most networking events, I feel very awkward and, and tired after. And I am tired, but this one was less awkward because it was all like women and people that I had talked to for the past two and a half years. Truly, I think most of the people I've written about like last week to two years ago were there. So I did not feel that tired. And I also got to meet Alexia Benazos. He used to be the editor-in-chief of TechCrunch. And so that was cool to meet someone who was You've like- you never met Alexia? No, not in person. Like I think, yeah, oh. just on Twitter. So it was a lot of like, did I meet? I got to see a few male allies as well. So Eric from Hustle Fun and Charles from Precursor were there. Oh, how fun. Yeah, so- it was really fun to see everyone. And I'm excited. I mean, I was obviously talking a ton about Disrupt as our chance to do this all over again. I hope we can kind of create the same thing. But based on the stage that was announced this week, a lot of our favorites yeah. are going to be making a double appearance between both events. Gosh, I didn't even think about that. We should bring that up. We are announcing the early panel setup for Disrupt. The TechCrunch Plus stage is going to be popping. Uh, in fact, the TechCrunch Plus stage planning committee is actually, <laughs> it turns out, the Equity Friday crew, <laughs> along with uh, Richard Smith and, yeah. and Lauren from the TechCrunch events team. But yeah, we're actually programming it. And so it's mostly done. So don't email us with ideas because we've been working on this for weeks. Uh, but we announced the first tranche of that because we are back in person this year. So Natasha, thank you for being the tip of the spear yes. uh, in terms of TechCrunch going back outside. But there'll be a lot more of that coming up in 2022. Now, 
Let's put all that aside and dive into the deals of the week. I'm going to start because, ladies and gentlemen, I covered a funding round. Yay! First time I won the plot. in months, Alex? In months. Yeah. Yeah, it's been... It's been a long time. I'm more of an editor now, so I don't cover as many of these as I would like, but Monte Carlo raised again, and I've been covering this company since it was a a little thing. It raised $135 million in a Series D at a $1.6 billion price. Now, again, whenever I hear about a six, sorry, a nine-figure round at a 10-figure price, I begin to go, what's going on? Because we hear about everything being worse and more conservative and so forth. And then you see this come out and you're like, okay, so what's the deal? Two things to point out about this. One is data observability is a real category. Natasha, Marianne, are you guys familiar with um, application monitoring, kind of like the data dog space of the world? On a high level, yeah. Okay, yeah. So essentially, like, imagine application monitoring, but for inbound data sources for companies, as everyone has more data, you want to kind of figure out what's going on and the health thereof. And so that's kind of the, the analogy that Bar Moses, the CEO, likes to draw. What matters is it's growing really fast. It's like doubling every quarter. And so I, I think that what this round shows to me is that if you do have the growth numbers, you can still raise maybe not like it's 2021, but at a maybe 80% of last year's price and, and dollar level. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had an 800% increase in revenue year over year, and that's a lot. It's a lot. The question is, what's the base from which yeah, that true. number comes from? True. I'm going to go ahead and flick Monte Carlo's ear here because I know them well enough that they won't take this personally. But like if you're raising a Series D and you're not sharing a hard number, I kind of wonder why. Take it personally, Monte Carlo. Take it very personally. They should. I agree with you, though. Natasha's out here stirring the pot. No, I mean, like, I think percentage growth rates are great when you're like a seed level startup, right? Because then you went from $1 in revenue to seven, right? Congratulations. That's what you should be doing. But once you're a unicorn, I really think that like you should, you know, share some hard numbers, but they are growing quickly. Data ops is a category. And I think it's cool to see segmentation in the data space more generally, because I think we said big data for so many years. It's good to see that kind of get sliced up into more discrete components, if you will. Yeah. Do we know when the round closed? I'm curious. I guess I like your point on them offering more specific numbers, and I'm sure they did to VCs. But I'm also like, should we like give VCs credit right now? Because technically, they're being a little bit more disciplined. So can we assume that the company has a solid ARR? That might be too much of a gift, but I feel like timing could tell us if that growth is legitimate or not. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm now frankly going through my notes from the call. I talked to Lior Kavish, who's the co-founder and CTO of the company for this one. I asked him, literally, my first question was, why 2021 money in 2022? Because I'm known for being polite on the phone. (laughs) And he said, and I'm paraphrasing my notes here, you know, to be honest, new investors are the best answer for that question. Essentially, there was just appetite for the round. And he said that it goes back to customers' growth and the fact that people did a lot of homework into the company. So that's not quite as much as I wanted to know. My recollection is that it was a a relatively recent round. So it's not like something that was raised last year was announced this year. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Anyways, that's Monte Carlo. As a last note, they are not sponsored the uh, the race this weekend. Uh, and if you get why that's a funny joke, uh, you're an F1 fan. Hi. Okay, cool. Let's move or on. Or you just follow Alex on Twitter, <laughs> which yeah. is how I know. Do I tweet about F1 that much? No. I, Sometimes. I <laughs> All right. I'll take, I'll take that under advisement, as they say. No, keep it up. Keep it up. Oh, I, I'm never going to stop. doesn't bother me. I'm never going to stop being annoying, but you can have different gradations of annoyingness, you know, in your personality. Anyways, enough for me. Natasha, there is news from the fintech world. It's not the fintech news we had for so long, which is that everything was going up and to the right. This is uh, the opposite. 
Yes, yes. So I'll tell you the headline, but then I want to toss it over to Marianne because she's been reporting on the company this entire True. time to the lead up. But fintech in the one click out, in the one click out, okay. A fintech in the one <laughs> click checkout space, Bolt, has laid off at least 100 employees. We know it's across a ton of roles, go to market, sales, recruiting, engineering as well. So it seems to have taken out a sizable chunk of their overall staff. But Marianne, that feels like the result after months of tensions for this company and the whole space somehow. Yeah. I mean, we all know what happened to Fast earlier this year, which was in the same space as Bolt. And if you don't know, Fast pretty much crashed and burned, to put it nicely. So Bolt has also made headlines for, there was a lot of scrutiny for whether or not the company was inflating its revenue and customer growth numbers. Lots of attention on the very outspoken Ryan Breslow, the former CEO, founder of the company. So yeah, there's been a lot of attention. And so a few weeks ago, the CEO put out a blog post, which was kind of an indirect response to these allegations of slowing revenue and customer growth and tried to say that the company had seen 131% year-over-year increase in shopper accounts and 192% year-over-year increase in total active merchant accounts. Soon after that, I'd heard talk of layoffs. I reached out to the company. I was told, no, there's no truth to that. Well, sure enough, we come to find out this week there were are, in fact, layoffs, at least 100 employees across go-to-market sales and recruiting. We don't really know much more beyond that, but it's not a surprise. Okay. Can I ask one question? Marianne, you gave us two metrics the company supplied to you to show that they were growing very quickly. And it was customer accounts and merchants, right? Yeah, shopper accounts and total active merchant yeah. accounts. Mm-hmm. Those make adjusted EBITDA appear to be gap friendly. Or those <laughs> sound like the furthest possible metrics from actual revenue, right? Like how ancillary right. can you get? And here's a data point. If you don't tell us a metric that matters and instead you point to a different metric that's going up, we presume you're full of shit. (laughs) Yeah, not a good sign. I I mean, it might have been better off just not doing that at all, honestly. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not sure what was the point. And, And then now there's also talk of like concern about there's a lot of controversy where the company offered employees to take out these recourse loans so that they could buy equity in the company. Am I saying this correctly? Uh, yeah. Close enough. Okay. So now people are wondering what happens to these laid off employees who took out these loans. Right. I mean, the takeaway has very much been like, now you're not only, if you were impacted by the layoff, you're both an employee who has lost your job and now owes the company that fired you money in some way, which definitely from a human perspective, that sucks. And I think it's really hard to like understand specifically how many people have been impacted by that loan structure. So Dan Premack from Axios was able to get in touch with Bolt and the spokesperson said only a single digit number of laid off employees took out that loans and the aggregate amount was below 200,000. The companies, of course, also plan to work with those individuals, air quotes. And so we don't know what's going to happen. I just think that that added layer of complexity was feels very unnecessary And it's just such like a note to like how in the peak of this tech hype, employees were very much told to take advantage of the promise of the company. They were going to get so rich on it. So it kind of sucks to see it backfire, not just from a salary perspective, but from them funding their own money too. Yeah. And I just want to say that when Ryan Breslow announced very publicly on Twitter that his company was going to offer the ability to loan money to employees to buy or essentially exercise their vested options and purchase stock in the company, everyone was like, whoa, 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 don't do that. Because when you add extra risk onto buying options, which is already a risky thing, like I spent a bunch of money on my Crunchbase options, sitting on those. Um, Crunchbase go public whenever yeah, you want. Yeah. Just saying. Dude. This was a disaster in the <laughs> dot-com boom back in the 2000 era. People took out loans, they bought the stock, the stock crashed, and then they had debt and no money, also lost their job in many cases. It's amazing how fast this went from breathless announcement from Bolt, 
warnings from VCs who went through the dot-com boom. Like, well, I mean, it was a bunch. There was uh, Jeff from GGV and others. And to now, when the company is laying off people, its valuation looks ridiculous. And now people are left holding the bag. Like, it was a quick yeah. turnaround. Right. I mean, VCs, one, rarely speak up. So like, it's yeah. very surprising that they did in this situation. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just kind of pisses me off, to be honest, because like Ryan could not have, he could not have not seen that this might be coming. So like, why would you do that to your employees? Unless you're either delusional about what's going to happen or overconfident. I mean, I, I'm just not sure what was, I'm not trying to insult Ryan, but I'm like really not sure what he was thinking when he did this, knowing the the state of the company internally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it sounds a little like better.com, right? I know when you were writing about them and they had kind of told you that they had a bunch of money in the bank and then did these layoffs, like it smells of the exact same thing, which is... Yeah, you're right. Parallel. There's some parallels there. Yeah. I was going to draw a different parallel, but I, I'm glad we brought that one up first. But you know, remember when Box was private and Aaron Levy was like the most ubiquitous, you know, essentially unicorn CEO back in the day. And he, what he did was he took his ability to be charismatic in front of a microphone or on a stage and essentially used himself as a way to lever tons of attention for Box. And mm-hmm. that was backed up with growing SaaS revenues and eventual IPO. And, you know, the company is now going to do just under a billion dollars in revenue this year. So it worked out. There were some bumps in the road in the way, but essentially Aaron Levy showed you can be noisy and have it be effective. I feel like everyone learned the first half of that lesson, which is that making noise (laughs) is useful and they're not backing it up with a substance, which is growing recurring revenues, which is what Box brought to the table. (laughs) And so you can't talk the game without having the results. And I, so now I feel like, this is a, a good reminder that the more frenetic your CEO appears, maybe it's more hand-waving than um, thought leadership, we, we might yeah. say. Anyways, yeah. speaking of thought leadership, Sequoia Capital. <laughs> there has been a barrage, Natasha, of memos, as we've discussed a little bit on the Wednesday show, of people talking about what to do in the downturn. But Sequoia is out there once again playing, as you said, Nostradamus. And so I'm very curious why the Sequoia memo matters, kind of in the historical context, and what it said. Yeah. So Sequoia Capital is well known as the firm. I mean, it's 50 years old. It has published a ton of memos on market shifts from Rip the Good Times in 2008 to the infamous Black Swan memo in March 20 that was aged very poorly. And just a month later, when the biggest VC boom just started. And so seeing them again come to their founders, this time it was more internally. So the information got their hands on a 52 slide presentation on the market downturn. We were kind of just waiting for Sequoia Capital to say it the same way. Like when YC said it, a lot of early stage founders started paying attention. I think when Sequoia says things, we all pay attention because of just how big of a firm they are. The takeaways though, I think are pretty like consistent across every VC firm that has been talking about what the market means. Founders should extend runway. They should consider extension rounds, be more disciplined. My favorite part was the subtweet at Tiger Global. (laughs) They were just saying crossover funds are very exposed right now and they are, quote, tending to their wounds. I mean, in uh, financial speak, that is a a, like epic diss, right? That's like, I'm not going to make an analogy to more common language, but like that's about as mean as you get. And also there's some joy and pain there from Sequoia, because a lot of these mega VC firms, Marianne, that we saw, you know, be leading firms up until the Tiger Global era were almost supplanted in a degree by Tiger Global coming in with a checkbook and no demands for board seats and so forth. And, you know, kind of made Sequoia look silly for a bit and Kleiner and a lot of other other firms. And now I think they're saying like, haha, it turns out Tiger wasn't so smart. Tiger instead turned a lot of money into less money. Yeah. I mean, the wording was unlike prior periods, sources of cheap capital are not coming to save the day. <laughs> 
Source of cheap capital is uh, another good financial diss. <laughs> Ooh, it's just, it's so perfect. I actually just, someone just sent me the, the slideshow. So I'll work on something that gets out more of these excerpts. I didn't get to see it word for word yet, but now it's like a gem is in my inbox at the end of this show. I'm so excited about that. I, the moment we stop recording, we have to talk about that because I, yes. I also <clears throat> would love to see it. <laughs> so advice here seems to be, hold on, keep your powder dry, make sure you're not overspending, maybe cancel that offsite, don't make that next expensive hire, and survive. And Natasha, you're right. That has been the general vibe we've gotten from venture capitalists, comma, except for one. And that venture firm is everyone's favorite, Andreessen Horowitz. Love them, hate them, whatever. They are busy and they are making not just another wager on the crypto market. They are making Marianne their biggest bet to date. Yeah, I mean, four and a half billion dollar crypto fund is massive. And this comes, what, barely a year or le yeah, less than a year after their $2.2 billion crypto fund. Meanwhile, you know, there's a lot of a lot of doom talk around crypto. So this is a super bold move on the part of Andreessen. Shows a lot of confidence, continued confidence in this space. You got to admire their, their boldness here. Yeah, Natasha, when I saw that they're going to earmark about a third for seed stage deals, that's one and a half billion. Let's say every seed deal is huge and is $10 million, which of course it won't won't be, but like this just for the sake of it. One and a half billion divided by 10 is like 150 seed deals that are going to be huge just from this fund. Is Andreessen building an index fund of Web3 companies? Are they doing the tiger strategy, but at the earlier stage of the market? I definitely think that they're comfortable not leading anymore. And so as a result, they probably can do a ton more deals. And agreed. Yeah. Very much index fund vibes. Very much like we want everyone to know that we are investing through the crisis, which I think you rightfully in a column address. Like, I think that is a net positive, but I have a bearish take after you tell me about yours. <laughs> oh, okay. So really briefly, I mean, a complaint that I've had for the last couple of years is that venture capital really felt more like SaaS fuel. It seemed to be less risky. It seemed to be more metricized, less interesting. And sure, a lot of great companies were built, but it didn't seem to be as out there on the edge as you would expect from venture capital because it's expensive capital, because it's a risky wager. SaaS felt much less risky. And so it didn't seem to kind of fit the model. But I will say a four and a half billion dollar fund the biggest ever from Andreessen in this area, going into a sector in a downturn. That is venture capital. That is adventurous. That is actually bold. And so again, love them, hate them, like crypto or not, put all that aside. At least this is money where mouth is, right? This is backing up words yeah. with not just substance, but with more, which is impressive. It is. Yeah. I'll take that. I think the only thing I'll add is like, I was at first excited. Then I was like, okay, a lot of firms have dry powder right now. I want to see what Andreessen's actually doing with how they're investing. And so crypto, I think is an easy sector to be like, yay, everything's exciting because the prices haven't come down yet. And there's a lot of like, I don't know, it's, you're not alone in betting on crypto right now. And Andreessen, to be fair, has paid attention to crypto far longer than a lot of other VCs. So I'll give them props in that regard. But I want them to focus a lot on actually betting on risky founders, diverse founders, and like not just pattern match their existing crypto portfolio. And if I'm wrong here, feel free to tell me your diversity breakdown. But I just think that that's kind of like the awkward elephant in the room, for lack of better phrasing, is people are still investing. I don't think any VC is going to stop investing. I think they're just going to start using like our quality is increasing. And by quality, it just means patterns. So, and so you're, you're thinking that a more conservative venture capital market in general is going to wind up essentially investing in more white dudes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the same firm that wrote that memo that's saying it's time to build. And so I think that I'm not surprised to see them take a strong, let's keep doing it approach. What actually matters is like what happens after this is published. Let's see. 
Yeah, yeah. I think this is a good time to talk about a tweet from Hustle Fund's Eric Bond that that went out, I think, last night. And his observation was that underrepresented founders don't seem as freaked out about the current downturn. And his theory as to why is that since they were already being overlooked, they have been used to just focusing on business. And I thought that was an excellent point coming from Eric. I would have to agree with it. And I think it really just kind of sums up in general what's happening right now is like, if you're always heads down, just focused on growing your company, not trying to like be flashy on social media and over hire and over hype, then this isn't a dramatic shift for you. But if you went nuts, raising all sorts of money with inflated valuations and and hiring way more than you really needed to, you're going to be suffering right now. And in particular, the underrepresented founders who have to work their asses off about 10 times harder than non-underrepresented founders. Yes. You know, it's not that different for them. I saw a very similar sentiment, but from a a group of women investors, and they were saying like, you know, women raised like 2% of venture capital last year, and they've always had to have a revenue focus and stability in their business and a limited cash burn. And someone was like, show me the unicorn out there that have ridiculous valuations, no revenue, and are founded and run by women. So true. I saw that. So true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And so like, you know, if last year you were betting on underrepresented founders across a number of, uh, of axes, you're probably looking at a portfolio that's bleeding less money. And, you know, I'm not going to say pattern matching is, uh, is good or bad. It's something that humans do mentally, but like, if you look at the pattern of companies that we're discussing that are struggling, there is a pattern to the founders. Yeah, exactly. It's like pattern matching is bad in the venture capital sense, because that is not what venture is made to do as an asset class, right? Like, isn't it made to bet on the outlier and not the pattern? I think pattern well, matching I mean, in, Yeah, it's contradictory. In theory, right? That's why I complain about it occasionally. But I mean, like, you know, if you made a bunch of money off of, you know, three Stanford grads in a row who have the last name Smith, maybe you find a fourth. That's how we yeah. got Clinkle, if you recall, back to those days. So we're seeing a kind of pro and con. We are seeing some investor firms discuss maintenance mode, stability, and staying alive. And we are seeing Andreessen lean in. But Marian, we have seen a number of companies still manage to pull off rounds, apart from Monte Carlo, that are rather impressive. So just briefly, can you tell us a little bit about Zip and then a little bit about Nowports, just for some context? Yeah, so I wrote about two companies this week. One, Zip raised $43 million in a Series B at a $1.2 billion valuation. They call themselves a concierge for procurement. (laughs) In simpler terms, that basically means is they've built this software to give people within companies, enterprises mainly, but they say it works for smaller companies too, the ability to start the process of trying to purchase something within your company to make it an much easier, more streamlined, faster process. So they've only been around about like 18 months or so, and they're now a unicorn. They've got customers like Snowflake, Coinbase, Airtable, Webflow, Databricks. Interesting. So this and the next company I'm going to talk about, Nowports, which just raised $150 million in a Series C valued at $1.1 billion, and they're an automated digital freight forwarder. They're examples of company in, in what you might say are very non-sexy spaces, but are, appear to be doing pretty damn well. And I think this kind of speaks to the fact that flashy doesn't always mean better. I mean, you know, you're if you solve a pain point that's really important, has, especially in Nowports case, they're trying to help businesses in Latin America particularly small and medium to medium-sized enterprises, be able to import faster, more effectively, help them with financing. This impacts the whole world, right? I mean, it's not just a little singular little problem for 
a bunch of rich people. And so, <laughs> I mean, you know, so I, I feel like these are two very solid examples of non-sexy being lucrative. And, you know, maybe more investors need to consider that kind of thing. Oh, brutal. I don't disagree with any of that. I just want to say that I think concierge for procurement is a great idea because when I was taught about what procurement does at a company, it was essentially as follows. People agree to buy things and a contract is agreed on. And then after I decide to buy something, it goes to procurement at my company. And then they beat the crap out of the vendor and try to like just rip value out of the deal. And so procurement were essentially the bad guys on staff to try to limit costs. Well, who wants to pay for that? Just have someone else do it. I think it's brilliant. Um, <laughs> you're just outsourcing your meanness, I think, which is cool. I would love well, the idea. I mean, I think it's more about trying to make the process streamline within the organization. Uh, so you're not having to go through like all these 50 million teams and all this bureaucracy just to get something approved you know, and it could take forever for it to happen. So I think that's what they're trying to do is just like simplify it internally for companies. But regardless, you're right, Alex, in that trying to buy anything within a company is a pain in the ass and they're trying to make it less so. I mean, I'll, I'll just use our own company as an example. Sometimes I just use my own money to buy stuff instead of my corporate card to avoid going through the expense process because I'd rather have less money than deal with that. So, yeah, yeah, it's so true. I mean, flat out, like, yeah. I wish I, I'm too cheap for that, but I should consider that. Like, I just expense. I mean, I expense, I only expense the correct things, but I will do anything to get my five dollar coffee back. Um, Marianne, I had a question for you, which is: mm-hmm. let's take away the companies themselves and just focus on the deal prices. Do you think you would have covered these companies a year ago, or do they feel like they stood out? Yeah, I mean, I did cover Nowports a year ago, or less than a year ago, when they had just raised a sixteen million dollars Series A. Because I thought what they were doing was important. And I thought, hey, this is something that could really make an impact. And I guess investors agree. They are growing quite a bit. They said their revenue climbed by more than 12x year over year in the first quarter. And so, yeah, I did. And I think it's, I'm impressed. I mean, their valuation in March 2021 was 80 million. It's now 1.1. This is a Monterey, Mexico-based company. I mean, all the power to them. This is impressive. Love to see a Mexican company kick ass. But I will just say, once again, this is a late stage startup. Series C, giving us 10x year-over-year growth. Cool. How about some hard numbers? Because you, I mean, that, yeah, hard numbers would be amazing. If you're post-Series B and you're not giving out hard numbers, why do you demand to be? What's that movie Elf with the really tall guy in the Elf Land and everyone else is really short? Is it, is it called is Elf? It Elf? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what you look like. You look like like, like a 45 year old in like you know high school. Like, give us and some I hard repeat, numbers. Take it personally, everyone. Take it personally. Natasha's <laughs> <laughs> just saying, ah, let's fight. <laughs> Okay, speaking of combat, though, and being spicy, Marianne, we have to talk about three companies. One is Phoenix, which we've covered ad nauseum on the show and on the site. One is Plaid, same thing. One is Stripe. And there has been some news that you were going to write about, I think, in your newsletter about Phoenix kind of edging into Stripe territory. So let's start there, and then we'll talk about the overall competitive landscape. Yes. Okay, so... For those who are not that familiar with the payment infrastructure world, <laughs> a couple of years ago, this this newish startup called Phoenix raised some money, and Sequoia was, I don't remember if it was a lead investor or just one of the investors put like $20 million into the company, and then only to back out of being an investor because another portfolio company, this little known startup called Stripe, reportedly had a hissy fit and 
you know, I think they viewed Phoenix as a threat because of their being a payment infrastructure business as well. And so, and anyway, what happened is Phoenix got to keep the $20 million while Sequoia is an investor and Phoenix has just continued to build. Now, this, I think last week, the company announced that it's serving as a payments facilitator to startups. So in the past, what it's does is provided the infrastructure for other companies to be payments facilitators. But now they themselves can be payments facilitators. And this puts them into direct competition with Stripe. Okay, so Phoenix used to offer the ability for companies to become their own payment facilitators. And still does. Still still does. does. Okay, Mm -hmm. but now it's also centralizing that power inside of itself to offer essentially that as a service as opposed to having you do it yourself. And that does bring it much closer to Stripe, which is best known as a, a payments tool, effectively, a way to collect money. Right, yeah. Yes. Okay. So we have Phoenix, which previously wasn't competing with Stripe directly, now edging into that territory. Natasha, we've also heard from Plaid. They've been building out a bunch of stuff. And, you know, you wrote in our notes that your big question is, who isn't fighting with Stripe right now? (laughs) And so far as I can tell, the answer is everyone is. Yeah. Yeah, everyone (laughs) is. And what I, this, I know this is like a little bit of theorizing here. So bear with me. And there's a huge asterisk because it's not proven or reported out yet. But there must be other investors that have pulled out the same way Sequoia has, if not similarly, because their companies have decided to compete with each other. I just feel like this is like insane that, I mean, and Marianne, thank you for covering it in such an understanding and non-pretentious way because I'm very like, I think a lot of people on Twitter are like, like this makes so much sense. Like everyone is competing with each other, whatever. And so I just feel like if you're an investor right now and you've invested in one of these companies, there's so much that you have to answer about your own philosophy on competition and Intel Mm -hmm. and who to share notes with, which stresses me out clearly. (laughs) But Marianne, I struggle to see how investors in fintech companies can avoid at least some conflict, because you and I wrote recently about how fintech companies tend to expand their product lines over time, especially in a B2B context. And so, you know, as we see Plaid end up with more competitive landscape with Stripe and Stripe with more competitive landscape with Plaid, it's not a huge shock to see that Phoenix is also edging its way in. And if that's the case, then, you know, how can you possibly avoid conflicts if everything ends up kind of being the same? I mean, you can't. And I think we all know, we all agree competition is healthy. We're not beating up on competition, right? And I think we've talked about this before. It's just the way you compete, right? If you can do it ethically, and if you can do it in a way that's, you know, if you do it with integrity, there's no harm in it. And that's all I'll say. In fact, I would say if you compete with integrity, it's great for consumers. Because one thing that we're going to see with all three of these mega companies competing, and obviously Stripe is the biggest, Plaid's rather large, Phoenix is much earlier stage, but they're all going to be quite large. It's going to yield better prices for us consumers or via, you know, companies that buy these services and then charge us for services. It it works out well. The ethics thing that Marianne is bringing up was because when I think it was Stripe announced some stuff that competed with Plaid, the CEO of Plaid was like, oh, why were you applying for a job at our company with those exact things in mind? And so, you know, there is uh, some competitive aspects that might be less than savory out there, but it's business. It's not, you know, I mean, I don't expect peak ethics in the business world when it's competitive. Maybe that's overly generous of me, but... No, you're right. I mean, you're we, right. Don't, we don't know what happened, right? Like, I can't sit here and make a judgment call. I don't know what really happened. I'm just saying generally, I am a firm believer in being ethical and having integrity in whatever you do in business or personally or whatever, not to sound all preachy. And if you grow to be a multi-billion dollar company, great. And that's amazing. But like, I think if you know you did it in a way that wasn't underhanded or, you know, sneaky... 
I would feel better about it, but maybe that's just me. And maybe that's why I'm not the CEO or co-founder of a $95 billion <laughs> company. I mean, I think you're right though. Cause like what Alex said is like, it raises the bar for other companies and it helps consumers in the long run. If you compete in a useful way yes. and not a way that like will backfire or is like short term wins. I'm, I'm glad you're writing about it in your newsletter because I think there's like, you could probably make this your entire beat, just like fintech competition. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I think in before companies could always just raise more money. And so we didn't see like the pain from competition show up as much maybe last year. But this year when capital is a little bit more scarce and companies are going to be competing just as much, if not more, as their space overlaps, their products overlap. I wonder if we're going to see more friction from this sort of competition and therefore more sniping, more public comments, and maybe just some sharper elbows overall, Marianne. Yeah, I mean, and just fintech, the nature of fintech, it lends itself to a lot of competition. And, and it's a it's a massive space and there's yes. a lot of opportunity in it. So as we've said in the past, I mean, this, these all don't have to be winner take all whatever spaces. I mean, there's room for lots of players. So you know, we'll see how it plays out. But yeah. but yeah, read my newsletter this weekend. Yeah, if you don't read The Interchange, where you been? It's a great newsletter. I read it every weekend because Marianne is one of my favorite journalists on the planet. And I'm going to close this off here, but just keep in mind that we've talked about things that are positive, talked about things that are negative, and tried to tease out the tension between them and trying to figure out why some companies are raising like nothing changed, why some companies are pulling back, why some investors are pulling back, why some investors are doubling down. It is a period of change. And, and the real job of TechCrunch this year, I think, as an org, is to figure out where we are. And I think that this show goes to show that not everyone agrees on our current location in the business cycle. And so it's going to be clarifying and interesting to track these changes the rest of the year. But that's enough for today. Equity is back next week, Monday, Wednesday. No, I'm sorry, I lied. Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, because yes. it is a holiday in the United States. And we will be off. I will be sleeping. So I will see you guys on Tuesday. But uh, Mary and Natasha, as always, a pleasure. And Grace, thank you so much for all your help on the production side. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. 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 